Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. And today's topic, I've been wanting to talk about this for ages. So I'm really glad to have some great guests on the show with me today because we are delving into what it is like to be queer with cancer. So um, Ben Hayworth is on the line. He's in Manchester and he works with the LGBT Cancer Support Alliance. And Rebecca's going to be joining us as well. She's 32. She's um, recently diagnosed, but already running into some heteronormative assumptions. <laughs> um, although being married, um, the doctor didn't quite understand why there was no possibility she could be pregnant. So those are always interesting conversations <laughs> to be had. We'll be hearing from her a little bit later, but but right here beside me, I have Stuart O'Callaghan. And Stuart has started a support group in London called Live Through This. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so thank you so much for being here today. No problem at all. Um, and can you tell me what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed? Yeah, so I had actually just left London and moved to Berlin, like some of you do in that great exodus when they want something new. Mm -hmm. And I'd been there about six months at that point and, you know, planned to be there long term. And it just by chance actually found out that I had cancer because I had food poisoning. Really? Really odd way to find it. Yeah. yeah. But I had food poisoning, didn't really recover for quite a while, went to hospital and they did some blood tests. And that's when they noticed a severe spike in the white blood cell counts because I've got chronic myeloid leukemia. So you can have it for a really long time undiagnosed. So, you know, in one of those weird ways doctors tell you, you're lucky. Uh, they told me I was quite lucky to find it quite early and be quite young and all this kind of stuff. But it is a chronic thing that I have to have for the rest of my life. So... It was around that time I had to make the decision as well because I was making a lot of very quick health decisions and also dealing with a foreign healthcare system and also a lack of support because it wasn't my native tongue. So I decided to come back to England to find support that I thought I could actually connect to and deal with all these feelings that I've been going through. Mm -hmm. And then got here and maybe didn't find the exact support I was looking for, so set it up instead. Brilliant. And so what, what was the point that... You know, there's that moment where you're like, okay, I see there's something that I need. There's this lack, there's this space. Mm -hmm. There are things that I want to talk about, but I'm not quite sure where to bring them up and actually going, I'm going to make this. Yeah, um, I. it's a really good way to put it because I think it's one of those things where you uh, put up with something for so long that you break first, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. and then you kind of let everything follow after. It's almost like a dam. And then it was a, it was a thing where... I had been treated in Brighton, you know, very LGBT forward place and seen no leaflets, no support, even in the really huge Horizon Centre they have there for cancer patients. And then when I came to London, I thought, oh, maybe it'd be slightly better. Again, nothing really happened. So after another year, I'd sort of realised I'd been living with cancer for about two, two and a half years at that point, And I still hadn't had the chance to find the support or connections I was looking for. And I've, and it was one of those things that was like, okay, either doesn't exist because no one needs it or no one's really doing it. Mm -hmm. And then so I just approached my local Macmillan Centre and my actual treatment hospital and they are very, very good at public and patient involvement. So they took it straight on. They really encouraged me. They helped build a multidisciplinary team around it just to make sure we really understood what was going on. And I still work with them quite a lot. And it's been a really, really, really good relationship. 
But it was just a case of one of those things. If, if I'm sitting there and I'm feeling like I need to speak to people like myself, mm-hmm. maybe there's others too. And so how do you identify? So I would say I identify as... Um, I guess like a non-binary person and I like to use they them pronouns um, and uh, I sleep with men. Mm-hmm. And what did you find that wasn't being fulfilled like in a regular cancer support kind of network or setup that you felt that um, specific things weren't being raised I mean were there other queer people there but maybe no one was really talking or like what what are some of the things that are a little bit different about the experience I I think what it was was when I was going into these spaces and being offered support a lot of the support was based on factors of my identity that people presumed or thought that I could fit into so with my health it usually affects people much later in life so I was you know, suggested to do chair yoga with people with the same other disease, that kind of stuff. Uh, or people would be like, oh, no, you present as like quite a masculine man. Therefore, you need to go and you need to play table tennis with these young, cool guys and go on pub crawls and all this stuff. And I don't drink as well. So it was all this kind of pigeonholing of myself, which is not a bad thing. You know, they're trying to do their best to help. But I realize none of it feels right. Not for me. So it was one of those things where then I had to kind of almost look inwards and be like, okay, well, what about me helps me connect with other people? Mm -hmm. What's the thing that I find most uh, fruitful? So I actually started getting a lot more involved in the local queer community stuff, especially in London, going to more demos. In Berlin, I'd done quite a lot of this as well. And I kind of realized, like, maybe that's the bit that I take most strength from. But, when you know, in the time that I grew up and came out, we were always told to kind of diminish that part of ourselves. You know, straight acting was a term you were aspiring to be. It was it was a different time. And I think now that we get to be a bit more open and describe ourselves in new ways and connect in different ways, I wanted to see if there was a way that I could bring those two parts together. Because I, I had found that there was a really difficult part with being a cancer patient. It was very difficult to bring people from my personal life into it because I didn't want to feel like a burden. It was Mm. quite a cold environment, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I wasn't able to take my cancer life into my social environment because a lot of that's based around nightlife and being fun and having all this energy. (laughs) And I don't have so much anymore. So I felt lost in the middle. So I thought, you know, maybe if I can find other people that have that thing. And the, the reason I set up the support I did as well, because there are others out there, there are, but they tend to be quite tumor specific or they're quite gender specific. Mm-hmm. You know, I I can relate to that. I found that I, um, I definitely went through like a, a process of prioritizing. Mm. So right at the beginning of being diagnosed, I had to go to a doctor for advice about fertility. And I took my fiercest friend with me. I mean, I would not cross her. (laughs) I love her. I'm scared of her. Um, And I mean, the amount of... I mean, she wasn't like out and out um, homophobic, um, but it was very clear what she thought. Yeah. I mean, she looked at me and was like, well, if you continue mm. with this alternative lifestyle, you know, I mean, it was drenched in. Yeah. And it's very disempowering. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, uh, and, and, you know, I was out. My friend was super out, like, and neither of us said anything. Yeah. And she was, I mean, she said lots of things, but it was like almost like I had to prioritize just getting through. And if that meant dropping my partner's hand, you know, before a doctor or a nurse came in the room, if that, like, I mm-hmm. I put that aside yeah. because I was like, okay, 
you know, I need to get through this. Yeah, that's it. I think that's the problem. Obviously, we all learn these skills when we're growing up and coming out anyway. You learn to compartmentalize parts of yourself mm-hmm. in order to navigate the world. But when you go into the healthcare environment as a patient, there is an inevitable power shift, especially when you have like a serious health condition. And I think sometimes what can be missed is the fact that as a patient, you are giving over a lot of power and agency to these doctors. Yes. And what's difficult is people in that position have a way of speaking. They're very, very used to this stuff. But it comes back to what you're saying before about not being overtly homophobic, but it's what we call microaggressions. And it's these things that we feel and we pick up on and they add up and they have a cumulative weight. But if you call them out, you feel like you don't have the power to do so Mm-mm. because they can say, well, I wasn't you know homophobic I didn't say this or I didn't use this expletive so it can feel really really heavy and and it's a difficult thing because when you get into that point there's this thing called learned helplessness which if you get to that position where you feel like you're just at a loss it it can lead into depression it can lead Mm -hmm. into even more mental health issues and it's, it's, you know, it's, you can experience microaggressions when you're out shopping or, you yeah, know, in oh, lots yeah. of other different environments. But actually, when, it, when it's your life yeah. and yeah. when a doctor has so much power yeah. and when you're not sure how to necessarily trust in those situations. Um, I, I read um, a quote um, yesterday that one woman said, that she feared that when the surgeon went in, he might just leave a little bit of the cancer behind. Yeah, I saw the same, yeah. Um, because he, you know, maybe didn't agree with her mm-hmm. being, you know. And and it is that absolute fear of, you know, these people have your life in their hands. And how do you build that trust when you've maybe had a lifetime of discrimination when exactly. there is this kind of entrenched or... You know, you can pick up on those subliminal messaging that, you know, or on the flip side, you know, how how many people who are, um, you know, not on the career spectrum um, are listening to their results while also looking at the doctor's face, scanning for any signs of allyship. Mm-hmm. Right. So not only are you trying to like absorb like all this information, but like, are you cool? Are we yeah. cool? Yeah. That takes so much energy. Yeah, I think it's all because you're in such a vulnerable position. You're looking for a very human connection. But mm-hmm. the whole you know, experience, especially with specialists, it's not a very human conversation to have. <laughs> so, you know, it, I think that's why support is incredibly useful. And that's why it's really unfortunate there is just a complete lack of LGBT-specific psycho support that can really understand the differences our community, our needs, the things like we've been through. I think another thing you touched on as well, which is really great, is there's a historical aspect that often gets ignored. So, you know, there are current initiatives to make things more inclusive, which is fantastic, and they need to be there. You know, you've got the the rainbow badge, and you've got these wonderful things going on in education. But... I think one of the other things is proving to the community things have changed. You know, it's only really, really, really with the Equality Act that things actually, you know, got legally safe. And people in their lifetimes have had a very long history of being ostracized and not mm. being welcome in certain spaces. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things do permeate through a culture and through our community. So it's a case of going into these environments. And I've done the same thing when I actually had open chest surgery after a hate crime because I had uh, my lung collapsed. But it was a thing where my partner was there as well and 
nurses treated me differently when he was on the ward, when they realised, all that kind of stuff. So oh, you do... so that's a double. I mean... Yeah, and, and, and it also shows the transference. So then when I go into any other environment, this doctor may be fantastic, but I've had a bad experience. Yes. So it's a case of people need to be welcoming, inclusive, but they also need to be aware there may be a possible history that is a barrier right. for somebody that they're trying to personally overcome. Mm-hmm. And everyone would have slightly different, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of some of um, my friends who um, have never um, gone for um, a pap smear yeah, um, a because problem. they would not allow anything inside them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and one of my friends went ahead. She actually went to the same evil doctor, by the way. Oh, that, no. that doctor was oh. evil because I, I did my research on her afterwards. And she gave her a brutal exam. Mm. And it's that kind of like, yeah, you don't even know what doctors have done to people yeah. in advance. This woman had a litany of things. That's so Tina terrible. Tina Coopersmith. <laughs> yeah. They're in shape. Um, um, she already has like a bunch of things on her Yelp. Um, yeah, really, really despicable person. But um, yeah, like I think it, when people show up, as you said, that... It's with a, a lifetime of... Yeah, and, and I think there's another really great thing you touched on there because obviously cervical smears is just a really big issue in regards to people not attending them, being told they don't need to go to them, which is untrue. You know, everybody needs to be going and getting their scan. I've been told that smear, too. Right? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's this whole kind of heteronormative assumption of that's where the risk comes from in HPV, mm-hmm. but it's just not true. So, you know, you have all these things, but also there's only things that I've done or I've found out through my research and through being more involved, so things like you can request a smaller speculum. You know, if, if you you're not very used to having something there. They, there are ways to make it more comfortable. But if somebody approaching isn't given that option, they won't know to ask. They're more likely to have yeah. a negative experience. And we need to catch those negative experiences before they happen because that's what goes back to the community. That's right. the stories we share with each other. Right. You know, Unfortunately, we tend to share negative stories more than positive ones. So there needs to be a real step up on checking with people beforehand. How can we make this better for you? Like, Is there a mm. way we can do it before? How do you want to be attending, especially for trans people attending these screenings and stuff as well? Cool. So I want to bring um, ben Hayworth into this conversation. Yes. Um, Ben's on the line um, in Manchester. And Ben, you work for the LGBT Cancer Support Alliance. Um, yeah. And um, and what drew you to working with them? Uh, well, I was actually the founder of the LGBT Cancer Support Alliance uh, a few years ago. And um, I just want to kind of paint a little picture about how that um, project, because it is a project rather than an organisation, kind of came into being if that's okay. Yeah. So um, my normal uh, organisation that I'm, I, I kind of live in is the Christie Hospital in Manchester, which is one of um, the biggest cancer centres in Europe. And um, I work primarily with patients who are living with and beyond cancer, which is sometimes known as cancer survivorship. And that's all about dealing with the, uh, the aftercare and the, uh, the, out- the outcome and the consequences of treatment of people. Um, who have largely, broadly speaking, done well during treatment but might have ongoing needs as they promote their recovery. And it became pretty clear to me that there wasn't any work really being done around equality and diversity um, for this patient group, and we're talking about five or six years ago now. So there's a sort of embryonic project um, forming in my mind at this stage around possibly the needs of LGBT people because I'm from the LGBT community and have some lived experience that I could bring to the table and if you find a, a sort of professional intersection like that it's often a good idea to pursue it. 
Um, and when you start putting out feelers, it, it, it became quite clear that there was a, there was a real need, I think, for the organisation to think a bit more carefully about whether it was really um, recognising people's identities and delivering the sort of care that was needed to, to really enhance the recovery for, for patients in this group. So the idea was to uh, put a small project together of interested professionals in Manchester and that became known as the LGBT Cancer Support Alliance. And then as best practice dictates, we found quite a lot of LGBT people affected by cancer who also wanted to work with us on that project. And over time, that grew into something that then um, cross-cut a lot across several different organisations on the Greater Manchester footprint. And at one stage, we had about 30 different stakeholders joining us for what were pretty constructive meetings around some of the issues that, that we've actually already talked about in this podcast. So um, we had a fairly large program of work. Um, we broke it down really into the cancer pathway um, as a sort of linear progression. So part of our work was to do with um, early diagnosis, signs and symptoms and prevention. Part of our work was to do with people who were actively on treatment and what was going on there. Part of our work would have focused more on the living with and beyond side, and part of our work focused on palliative and end-of-life care. So it, it kind of had a sort of linear progression mm -hmm. to it. And that enabled us then to get particular professionals who worked in those areas more readily involved because it was clear why it was relevant to their particular work environment. So that worked out really well. And then uh, we were lucky enough to get a Macmillan grant for a couple of years to take this forward and employ somebody to work with us as a project coordinator and that was great and then eventually money runs out and things sort of trickle on and and the project comes to a conclusion but we still have an LGBT Cancer Support Alliance Twitter which people are very welcome to follow and we put information out on there um, touching on a lot of the topics that we've talked about and some of the work which has grown out of the original project that we did which has been really really successful and, and I'm pleased that what we what we really managed to do is, is put LGBT and cancer on the table as mm. a topic area, and it just wasn't there before at all. Did you feel um, that some doctors um, or some healthcare providers just felt like they gave equal care out, and that this this isn't even a thing? It's not. E it shouldn't even be on the docket. It makes no difference. Yeah. Did Did you come up against that? I think you find um, most professionals are very well-meaning and will say yes our door is open to everybody we have a universal offer of care mm -hmm. and whilst that's great it doesn't address any of the health inequalities or the access to service issues um, that might be creeping in because of people's um, particular identities or intersection of multiple identities in many instances so could you give like an example of that um well i, I think a great example would be to think about the experience of trans women affected by prostate cancer um, because if you have a, a full medical transition from male to female even if you go all the whole you know the whole hog and go and, and do as much as you can and have all the surgeries in the world and all the hormone replacements and, and all the rest of it you will still retain a prostate um, so you are still going to be at risk of prostate cancer so for a trans woman, that's a constant reminder if they get a prostate cancer diagnosis that they were born male. Mm -hmm. And the system is just not set up for um, women and trans women with prostate cancer because there's an assumption made 
that everybody accessing that service is going to be a cisgender male. So there is no activity undertaken whatsoever to um, make those individuals feel more at ease if they do need to access that service. It may be something as simple as an individual coming along and finding that they're sat in a waiting room full of men and getting lots of weird glares as to why is there a trans woman sat, sat in this waiting room. Um, and then the, uh, the education and training of the uh, prostate cancer healthcare team might not be uh, up to scratch around trans issues, mm-hmm. um, and they might feel that um, there's a great potential for misgendering and worries about discrimination and all that sort of stuff when they actually speak to professionals, as, as we've already mentioned, that can really happen. Yeah. And, it's, and it's at such a time when you're already so vulnerable, Right. So, you know, it's like there's there's a a toughness sometimes that I think a lot of us walk around the world with, you know, um, that, you know, it may be a little protective coating. But when you're in pain, when you're fear, you know, scared, um, you're incredibly raw. Um, You are. You are. Cancer is one of those things that affects every aspect of your life. It's not just the case of go in, have a quick bit of surgery, and then you're fine. There's the psychological and the emotional impact. There might be impacts on your social life. There might be impacts on your finances, on your employment. It might take a very long time for the um, the treatment pathway to kind of evolve and change. It might be that you then have anxiety about relapse. It might be that um, the cancer is, in fact, incurable, and you have to live with managed disease for, for a very long time. And you might, in fact, end up in an end-of-life pathway or something like that. So... The last thing you want to be doing when you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis is also dealing with institutionalised discrimination. Yeah, and I know, Stuart, you wanted to add a, a yeah, point Yeah, I, I think here. it just comes down to this thing as well. That this, I guess, again, you were saying the institutionalised thing, people, when they go into these situations, have to make this decision. Am I going to out myself uh, in order for this healthcare, or am I going to also protect myself in this other way? So you kind of have to weigh it up. and those environments have to be more supportive in allowing people to out themselves because you, you can't force someone to come out, you can't coerce them to do it, you have to make the whole environment safe for them so mm-hmm. they can do so. And, and you know, I think a lot of people um, that, are, that are not covered under the LGBTQ um, feel very vulnerable when, when they're in hospital mm. in particular. Um, you know, and, and, and you're, you're incredibly dependent. And, and so do you find that um, that comes up as, as one of the places that people feel um, uh, maybe a bit more scared or a bit more worried or a bit more concerned, um, Ben? I think... I think um, or where more incidences happen of... Well, I, I just think it's a very holistic thing. I mean, it, it's really hard to separate out all the emotions that you might feel when you get impacted by cancer. Because on the one hand, there's going to be anxiety about the cancer. And on the other hand, you've then got anxiety about coming out as an LGBT person to mm-hmm. services. So it, it all comes together in a big wave. So it's really hard to tease out individual things. Um, I know you mentioned um, uh, somebody... Um, had the experience when they were in hospital of um, uh, some of the people in the hospital um, basically uh, praying by their oh, bed. Oh, yes, yeah. Can you tell me about that? Story, yeah. um, this is to do with somebody who was in a care home 
and the anecdotal story goes like this that um, they had a they had um, a one-to-one provision of a carer and every time the individual came in to change the sheets or to, to deal with their personal care whatever it was they would spend five minutes at the foot of the bed praying the gay away and and then that was their idea of delivering care for that individual it's like we're trying to save your immortal soul here by praying the gay away and can you imagine how that must have felt yeah. for that individual who's relying on this person to deal with their you know most intimate needs mm-hmm. and they're there saying actually we don't recognize your identity as valid and we think we can help you by praying the gay away i mean it's absolutely crazy but these are the sorts of abuses that that do go on and there is a report by stonewall um i think it's called unhealthy attitudes it's relatively recent maybe a couple of years old but it clearly articulates that there is a lot of discrimination from um health and social care professionals still endemic within the nhs and i would um suggest that anybody who encounters problems like that then goes directly to their um patient advice and liaison service which is often shortened to PALS in that hospital and put a formal complaint in because most hospitals do have quite robust equality and diversity protocols in place now so there is a route to go down if you feel that there are issues and problems with the care that you're receiving. You know I mean there's something very powerful about that um, that that image and that sense of uh, you know, it just, um, yeah, being so, so vulnerable yeah, and it, and having something so, um, it, it, it's almost like I'm, I'm struggling to find words to describe that. But hearing about it, it definitely, like, you know, it's a bit of a sucker punch. You yeah. just think of how hard that must be. It, it, it really seems like a really bad abuse of that. Uh, patient and carer dynamic, you know, and and one of the things I think that also is ignored is the fact that the amount of physical and emotional effort that takes into processing these things when they happen or mm. following them up or seeing them through is effort you could be spent on yourself, making sure you're dealing with it properly, that you're actually getting the treatment you need or you're recovering in a way you need. So it's just it's another expenditure we have to do just to exist and get the same treatment. I think we mentioned um, peer support, didn't we, towards the start of of the podcast, and there are um, some issues around accessing peer support for people from the LGBT community. There's not that much stuff that's particularly tailored um, for those groups, and it can be really difficult going into cisgender and and sort of heteronormative groups and, and again, having to out yourself. And I think this is particularly pertinent um, when there are issues around um, sexual function that might be affected by cancer treatment, which I have to say is very, very common, particularly for people who have had radiotherapy to the pelvis or some surgeries and that sort of stuff. And going into these peer support groups where it might be a big bunch of guys, let's say, and they're all talking about erectile dysfunction and going in as a a gay or bisexual man, that's really intimidating and really difficult and and there aren't many other places to go where you can have those real conversations um i don't know if you've found anything in other parts of the country yeah um, so in in london we have walnut as an extension of metro which is specifically for uh, men that sleep with men 
uh, for the prostate issues. So that's a really good thing. And it, you know, it does come down to what you're saying as well. The Although being MSM doesn't increase your chance of prostate cancer, the outcomes are very different in regards to your intimacy and sex life. So they have to be managed differently. And again, if the healthcare providers aren't aware of this, then it is left to that kind of social support. So these these people have to take it on themselves. And also that means the structure and level of kind of service you're going to get is very different. So with the peer support that I run, it's less tumor specific. So it's more anybody can kind of come and mm -hmm. attend. And I make sure that I run it in a queer community center. So the anybody coming into the space as well, it's a safe space, it's a sober space. But you're also in a space where everybody understands and you're not going to have to, you know, get through these sort of gate holders in order to get to us. But I think there's also this other thing as well of even sometimes approaching services if you're not fully out or comfortable with who you are yet can also be a barrier in itself because you have to really make that leap. And I found even when I was trying to find the support before I set one up, it was, you know, I've been out since I was 13, but it was still kind of nerve wracking to go up to a Macmillan staff member and say, you know, do you have anything LGBT specific? Mm. And I, I worry there's a lot of people that aren't able to make that step. Yeah. So that's why it's important to, you know, get the work that we're both doing, Ben and I, out there and again through places like this podcast so that people can hear that it exists. Yeah. And even if you're not able to attend, there's other things you can be involved in. You can listen to this. I'm toying with the idea of making an online, uh, like, chat room for like an hour a week or something just to make sure people who as well maybe don't want to physically attend or they can't physically attend because there is a real issue as well about services being so local specific yeah and yes sometimes it comes down to funding and also it comes down to people have to travel but just because you're having cancer in london doesn't mean that your treatment therefore should be more tailored than someone who's having it in the countryside somewhere yeah i mean that's definitely one of the reasons that i started this podcast i was mm. diagnosed in la um i was incredibly lucky that there was so much support and then I moved to London which you know I was lucky to access support um, and, and it was actually it was really interesting I realized that I had um, compartmentalized certain things and so um, it wasn't until I was talking to Stuart <laughs> that I realized like oh I never even addressed <laughs> that you know like these things bubbled up because I literally mm -hmm you know, went into um, spaces and um, took what I, what I needed from it. Although I have to say that, um, sh so Shine Cancer Support, I've, I found there was quite a lot of queer people there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that felt like a very safe um, place for me um, and never encountered anything. But I know in... Uh, in some um it is it's about the environment right yeah, because there's something about being in an official support group and you're all sitting around yeah. <laughs> it's a bit different um you know than something that's like out having drinks you know yeah. and i think it's also it's great to bring people together as oh. well for the bowling. different identities and everything yeah, bowling. <laughs> yeah. And, and like i i really like when the multitude of different identities in the queer spectrum come together because there's a really great cross-pollination of ideas, experiences, and how they've coped with their lives. But another thing you touched on, which is really important as well, is there's a lot of people that have gone through the system, successfully completed treatment, and now living their lives. But like you said, there's things bubbling underneath still. They still didn't get to talk about it. And the moment mm. you kind of tease one thing, others come. And that's why with the support I offer, people who are in survivorship stage are able to come as well. Their partners are able to come, especially bereaved partners, because it's still something you're living with. You, even if you've gotten past the health condition, it's still an experience you're living with and it's mm. still going to change the way you see the world. So, um, Ben, yeah. uh, what would be your, if somebody is hesitant to come out, 
because I mean there is like a thousand comings out right because you often don't see the same doctor twice you mm -hmm. know yeah, um, yeah. there's a, a lot of rotation of different stuff and if somebody is like ah like do I have a blanket of like what I should do or should I decide with each every person um, and you know what signs am I looking for is there any advice that you would give someone that is hesitant or concerned about coming out to the healthcare providers? Well, the first thing I would say, absolutely, is that the vast majority of people that you're going to come across working in the NHS are going to be very open to hearing about LGBT identities and experiences, even if they've never come, well, knowingly come across an LGBT person before, because the vast majority of people that work in the NHS want to do a good job and want to care for people properly and are very, very open-minded and willing to think about it and listen to patients. That is, that is the big experience of care that the majority of people are going to get. So the first thing I would say to anybody is reassure them that that is the likely scenario. Now, obviously, I've already said that there are instances of discrimination and problems, and yes, there's a fair bit of it still goes on, but that is not going to be the majority of people's experiences. And I've heard from loads of people who have used our services in Manchester who have said it's been great. I never felt that I was troubled by my uh, sexual orientation or gender identity at any stage during my treatment, and I was treated fairly, honestly, and successfully, and that's great. So people are going to be, most of the time, in a positive space, so that would be the first thing. And the second thing I would say would be just look for the signs uh, of um, uh, the LGBT community within those hospital spaces, because we are encouraging people now to wear rainbow lanyards and to put little um, rainbow flags up and have posters around featuring representations of the LGBT community. Whilst that's not mainstreamed, it's definitely becoming a thing. Um, and I'm seeing so many more rainbow lanyards knocking around now. And these are being worn with integrity. It's not just a case of, um, what do you call it, rain rainbow washing, I think. <laughs> So, so keep your eye out for that sort of stuff because these these sort of visual cues should give you a bit of confidence to say, actually, I am in a safe space here and I am going to be treated fairly and I am going to be looked after and I can tell people about myself. And the third thing is, one of the big barriers we've got is, is the lack of monitoring of LGBT identities within services. So even to this day, it's very, very challenging for me to go to a a service in, in our hospital here and say, would you mind just counting how many LGBT people you've actually seen over the last year? They can't do it because whilst we have really good monitoring around disability, race, age, and so on and so forth, we don't have it for sexual orientation and trans status. So it's quite difficult for people to actually say, yes, I've seen any LGBT people mm. until they actually come through the door and make themselves known. So there's a bit of work for the community there as well. Yes, you know, it is difficult and challenging and you are facing cancer and everything else. But also, do be empowered as much as you can to go in and say, I'm me, I'm here, I want to be seen as I am. And that is going to be really helpful for services as well. That is really lovely to hear. And we're going to have Rebecca joining us in just a few moments. And she's uh, six months um, um, into her diagnosis. So um, we're going to be talking to her and, and some of her experiences. But I think that, yeah, if someone's listening to this podcast and, and they're at the beginning that, you know, there is that spectrum of experience and there are those signs to look for. And that's, that's really useful. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. 
and uh, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep in touch. What well, tell me um, the uh, Twitter again? Yeah, so I've got two Twitters. So if you've got your pens at the ready, <laughs> catch me on both of these. Um, the LGBT Cancer Support Alliance is a sort of generic catch-all Twitter for everything, um, and that's at LGBT Cancer Capital S Capital A. Or you can get me directly on a sort of Twitter that's about everything, not just cancer, and that is at This Morning Call. That's T H I S Morning Call C A L L. Both of those are fine. Brilliant. Thank you. I did have a look at the Twitter. There was some good stuff on there. <laughs> so brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> Rebecca is joining us on Skype. Hi, nice to be here. And you've been listening to the conversation so far. So um, have you, yeah, how have you found it? It's just interesting sort of listening to it and then thinking, well, have I applied that to, you know, when I've gone to an appointment, have I looked around, have I looked for the lanyards? Have I actually looked for the signs that it's okay to be who you are and probably I'd say no mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you're so preoccupied I think there's only so much your brain can handle and you don't think about it until it's in your face and then sometimes it might be too late right um to think is this okay and you've kind of said something you think oh should I have said that you know it's um it's a very stressful situation walking into a, an appointment or a waiting room it- is yes yeah. so <laughs> stressful so can you tell me what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed um well i just got married and um, we come back from our honeymoon and we had a bit of a downtime kind of you know opening cards you know looking at the pictures um and then my symptoms started i was meant to be going back to work so it kind of put a bit of a halt to that um so it was really meant to be kind of our you know honeymoon year my wife was turning 30 later in the year and then it's just I see a lot of the time people say you know I'm on the cancer treadmill but for me because everything every appointment I went to felt different it felt more like some kind of cancer coaster you know it was just everything was just so up and down and you try and be so normal but you find it hard to make plans you know I wanted to take my wife away for a birthday but I thought well what's going to be going on with me are we going to enjoy it it's yeah it's, it was it's just been a bit of a bit of an odd year really from like the ultimate high really to some of the lowest lows yeah oh god when you when you place all those experiences in such a short amount of time and of course yeah you know through this process you've also thought you were on one direction and then it's been changed quite a few times what's happened there um well, when I first had all my initial appointments, I just kept getting told, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's just like a heavy period. It's due to weight. We'll, we'll do a scan just, you know, I think just to shut me up, make me go away type thing. Um, and then, you know, you have a procedure and then get a phone call. Can you come in immediately? So you think the worst straight away. Um, and when I initially went back, I was told it was precancerous and I needed a few more tests. So, you know. I had an MRI, was waiting, you know, for my referral. And then I got a phone call um, off, like, the link nurse. And, you know, she told me over the phone that it was actually cancer. And it's like, well, I haven't had a new test. You know, it's just the not understanding of how I can go from one thing to another 
without any further testing and then you go to an appointment and they give you kind of a treatment plan so you know me and my wife go away we kind of start thinking right well you know we'll do this for a year and then you know we'll maybe look at doing this and then you go back four weeks later and it's like well no we're going to do this now it's like how am I meant to make a plan for a life if and I, th- I think that's such Everything a testament to, yeah, the coaster and there's some tornadoes going on at the same <laughs> yeah, time. And, yeah, you know, there's... down, halfway down a ramp, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a windstorm and there's, yeah. yeah, there's lightning. It's, yeah, it's such an intense experience that when on yeah. top of that, you know, um, you, um, you mentioned about bringing your... Uh, wife to appointments with you um how has that process been like when you walk in the room the two of you well I always there's a kind of this awkward moment where you know the consultant will stand up and there's this awkward sort of eye contact exchange and they're thinking oh who is my patient you know who, who am I meant to shake the hand of first and I almost feel like maybe I should have a sign, you know, like this is my wife, I have cancer, talk to me. You know, it's it feels really awkward because they don't know what to do. So you just kind of jump in and force your hand in the face, like it's me, I'm, I have cancer type, you know, just shake someone's hand. Uh-huh. Um, and and then do they ask just... who who she is? Yeah, well, and that, you know, she'll actually just shake the hand and say, you know, you know I'm Jade. Um, and then you sit down and then there's this awkward, you know, the sat forward and it's like, so are you f- friend? I'm almost like they're scared of what the answer's going to be. Uh, you know, your friend, is it your sister, you know, family? And it's like, no, she's my wife. And then there's this awkward, you know, there's no small talk then. Oh, how long have you been married? You know, mm. what you'd expect to kind of ease. It's just then kind of, there's an awkward little moment and then someone turns to a screen and we start talking about the, you know, what we're actually here for. And um so you've been married before to a man. Yes. Do you feel like if you know, or had you had the experience of walking in with a man to a, an appointment that there was the same kind of clarification that was happening as to your relationship? No, I feel like the name just suffices and then everyone sits down and we just you just kind of get on or there mm. might be a question, you know, oh, oh, you're married or you're just, you know, partners. And it's like, they automatically assume um, that that's the case and sometimes you just go with things I think so talking of assumptions right at the top of the show I did mention how um, you kind of got into it with um, before getting a biopsy they were trying yeah. to check if you were definitely pregnant or yeah. de- you know definitely not pregnant Yeah. and so how did that go well I was quite you know nervous about this procedure you know, you know you read a lot online and it's quite painful so you know I sit down in the room and he just asks me a simple question is there any chance you can be pregnant so I quite happily said there's no chance I'm in a same-sex relationship you know and he could a little tilt of the head and he's like are you sure I'm like I am positive <laughs> like we can bring my wife in you know I can say it in front of her I almost felt like I was on some kind of reality show doing a lie detector you know are you faithful to your wife <laughs> So, you know, and then he, you know, he wrote, well, I'll put that you've refused a pregnancy test. But he didn't actually ask me if I wanted to take one. So he wrote that I'd refused, went through, you know, some more questions. But I could just tell he wasn't happy. He kept coming back to it and saying, are you sure? And he's like, can you promise me? I'm like, I can promise. I was like, but if it will make you feel better, I will do a pregnancy test. So he's like, right, okay. You know, ask the nurse to come over. And obviously she bought the pot. And I'll be honest, I've never done a pregnancy test in a hostel. So I didn't really understand and what needed to be done and I was like I don't need the toilet though I was like I went before I came in for this procedure 
And then as soon as I said that, he was like, oh, okay, it doesn't matter. I'll just write that it's not applicable. It's not really, it's just not applicable and completely changed his mind. If it was that important, you could have waited for me to need the toilet. Like, which one is it? I either need it or I don't. And I do understand, you know, the double check, right? Because... A hundred percent, yeah. And and I'd understand, like, maybe if your partner was in the room, do you know what I mean? Because somebody might step out on their relationship, like, you know, or they might have a polyamorous relationship. Like, you Mm -hmm. you know, you don't always necessarily know. So I understand the second thing. But, like, when someone is saying, um, yeah, my my wife doesn't actually have the ability to do that, and they're not there, there's no reason to, you know. And I like how the bladder was more of an okay reason to say (laughs) not applicable as opposed to the actual partner. I think also comes Glass of like, water, so we'll move on. Yeah, you know, it's this thing of like doctor's language, where sometimes they don't realize it can be quite difficult. Like when I failed treatment and got moved on to another one, I was told that I had failed, I had failed, I had failed. And I was like, I haven't done anything. Mm. Yeah. I'm still doing it. So it's that thing when they say you've refused the test. No, it's not applicable. It's, yeah. it's not yeah. like you're being difficult. You're still going along with the process. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like the whole going back to if you went in with a man, if I went in and I said, well, no, I can't be pregnant, you know, my husband's infertile, mm. would they have just gone right okay that's no problem it's not you know it's the same thing my wife is technically infertile she can't make you pregnant it's the same (laughs) (laughs) and Um, you know would how would that have been met would I still have to do one or would they have been quite happy with that because it was something medical you know and speaking of um, kind of how doctors give um, information out so um, one of the things is um, is sometimes with certain surgeries they'll say uh, no sex for a certain amount of time. Yeah, and so that they've given you that um, recommendation. Was there anything yeah. that you would have liked to have asked but felt that you couldn't? Well, no sex is quite a broad statement to mm-hmm. make because sex, even for two heterosexual couples, can become very different. You know what they do and don't do together. So for me, with my wife, no sex. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what you know? What can't I do? You know, which part of it is maybe going to hurt me or you know cause me some discomfort? But I've never felt comfortable enough with the person telling me to say, well, you know, can we do this or well, what right. about this? Because and there's an assumption of what. It's just it's, penetration, yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. and yeah, um, yeah it's. Uh, have you have you had that situation of wanting to ask more than? Yeah, than you I've could? I've had a couple of issues where sex has sort of come into the mix, and I think obviously when you're, you know, sexual minority, being a queer person, that's where the differences are. And uh, two that I can instantly think of. One was when they wanted to put me on a medication that could have given me like diarrhea for a really long time, mm-hmm. and being a man that sleeps with men, kind of in that category that's something I was like kind of hinting at them being like it might change my life a bit and then and then it was just over their heads completely all the time so I was like okay we'll move on but then the other one as well was actually when I was asking about prep so I was saying you know can I take prep with the medication that I take because I have to take pills every day and it was this thing of like oh I don't know maybe sure we'll look into it and then no one ever gets back to you mm. so it's these things of sometimes even when you do present this stuff you don't necessarily get the responses you need and so when you get to like really difficult things like the literal ins and outs mm-hmm. you he's just sometimes not met with enough knowledge mm-hmm. yeah it's um it makes you think like what what could be done better in that kind of situation yeah. oh no I, th- I think it's also this other thing of understanding that it's not just 
being okay that LGBT people exist and they're on the wards and they're going to use the services, but it's also a little bit of extra engagement to be like, okay, well, how will the treatment plan that I'm putting forward impact their lives? So like, mm-hmm. like you're saying as well with your wife, this thing of like sex, it's like, okay, I should probably need to be a little bit more explicit about what kind of sex you can have and how this is going to work and all those kind of things because, you know, one size doesn't fit all ever really no but when you have someone that's come and they've also been brave enough to bring their partner into the room and you know be so mm-hmm. out and proud about it yeah you know take that on board in between your appointments think okay i need to change the plan slightly for this or i need to give them this information have you and your partner kind of ever had a discussion of what you might do if you did you know, even sense that you felt a little unsafe in a situation? Like, do you guys, you know, uh, do, do you feel like if you were in a situation that you're like, ah, in front of this person, I kind of don't want to say anything, um, that you ha- you, you've you developed any kind of code between you? Um, or do you worry not... that she would be upset if, if that happened? It isn't something that we have talked about, but... Um... And then part of me thinks, well, why should it have to be something that we should talk about? Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to have a plan in place. We should be able to go anywhere we want and, you know, say this is, you know, who we are. Um, You know, when we got married, you know, it's a legal thing. It's not any different than any other marriage. So part of me is quite sort of defensive in the fact, well, I don't want to have to make a plan. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. want to have to have a hand signal or, you know, a gesture to say, oh, hang on a minute, let's play this straight. Or, you know, I don't, you know, don't want um, to do that. But it is in the back of your head. And I think you end up micromanaging every situation. Um, And I think, like I said before, it just gets to a point where you just mentally, you just can't do that um, anymore. But I think if I gave her a look, I think she would, you know, the connection that we have I think if I gave her the, like a certain look she would know that you know don't say anything or um we'll maybe just play this one a bit slower mm-hmm. um because at the end of the day not everybody does you know agree mm-hmm. and you know that unfortunately is you know the world that we live in and when you're going into a room and it's a different doctor again you you don't know anything about that person um, like they don't really know anything about you other than what they've seen on the screen. So even the doctors and the consultants themselves, they're in a big, you know, they're in a big unknown. Are they hiding something that they don't feel like they could say to you? You know, you're thinking it's just from our perspective, but they could be thinking the same. They could completely agree with it, but maybe, you know, they don't want to think they're giving us extra sympathy if they come out and go, oh, that's great. <laughs> or, you know, it's yeah. there's so much complexity to the situations um, on top of the cancer diagnosis as well. I um, It's kind of another way I I got um, it was really weird I had had some um, problems with my lung as a result of my treatment Um, I had um, a partial collapse of my lung so I ended up out of an oncology department in another department and the doctor was awesome and she presented um, like a lesbian so that that was you know and uh, she looked all through my notes even though she was like seeing me for this one specific thing and she was like oh have you had your bone density test it's totally not her department <laughs> and she was like oh well we'll get you in for that and blah 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 and she like she yeah. rocked and I was like 
did she know? Yeah. And like, <laughs> did I get a hookup? No, no, it's always those ones that you kind of gravitate towards. And like, you yeah. know, I hate to stereotype, but sometimes it is with the cool edgy haircut or, yeah. or like whatever it is. <laughs> but there's such great markers as a patient because then, you know, beyond a lanyard, that kind of stuff, it's like, okay, this is a person with lived experience. Mm-hmm. They haven't just like chucked on the badge because, and the badges are great. But, you know, this is someone who I know I can really get into it with, that they've got my best interest. They yeah. understand where I'm coming from. I think another thing I quickly wanted to mention that I know is difficult is we're all talking about this as like very out and open people and quite confident mm. with who we are but I think there's a lot of people that go into these appointments who maybe aren't out yet they're yep. still questioning or they might have cultural issues they might be taking someone in like a family member that they can't be out around so I think it's also why we have to really push for this more inclusive environment and safer environment because we have the power and energy to present ourselves and have that confidence and be like no this is my partner or this is how I want to identify but there are a lot of people there who will struggle to make that step mm. so it's only really until that kind of hand is offered from the other side that I think more people will be, actually be able to do it so if somebody's listening to this and they are feeling a little alone like maybe 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 they're not 100% you know, kind of feeling necessarily a part of the community. They're not sure Mm. where Mm. they're lying. Things are in flux. Is there anything that you would um, say, like, in terms of, like, um, you know, to make them feel a little less alone? I just don't think you're never alone. There is someone out there or, you know, there's a, you know, private Facebook group if you want to keep everything separate. There's there's a place that you can go and find someone that can get you out of that hole that you naturally go into. Mm. Um, even if you want to stay in your hole, someone can maybe bring you some snacks and just sit <laughs> with you. Yeah. And yeah. you know, <laughs> if you just want to offload, you just want to talk about something that's completely nothing to do with your diagnosis. Just be, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, the anonymity of being online, it's, it does make it a lot easier just to open up because if, there's no judgment you know the people that you're speaking to they've been through it they're going through it they you know they can point you in the direction it's just it's just luck you just need to look for it and you'll find your place somewhere I love that. I, well, I love anyone that brings me snacks. Yeah, I was going to say, I love this. So that, that was really good. I really like that. And and yeah, so I would say for like, um, you know, somewhere like Shine Cancer Support, there isn't like a specific um, LGBT group within that. However, there is a number of people who are out mm. who I know would be very happy, you know, um, um, myself to bring some snacks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sometimes, yeah, like just even um, sort of identifying maybe someone else that, you know, you could just even like, yeah, have a conversation online yeah. with. That's it. I, I think conversations are the real paramount thing. And I think, so it's important to mention as well that before my diagnosis, as much as I was sort of, you know, in the community, I wasn't as in it as I am now. And I think it was through my health and the need to connect with other people that I got further into it and found that support that I definitely didn't have before. So it made me come to terms with my identity in a much more frank way than I did mm. before. And it was actually through coming to terms with my core identity better that I got to process my cancer better. And I really took it all on board as one. So, it you know it, it it's it's a journey. It's always a journey, and I think it can be you really. You said scary. the J word. Yeah. Oh, I did it. Oh, I did it. Oh. All right. So for cancer catchphrase bingo, you oh. can stamp your card. Ding ding ding. Um, I love it. But it, it is this thing. Of, you said it in the coolest way. I have thanks. to say okay. though. Cool. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's just it's just this thing. Okay, you're on a path. There's the uh. other one. Um, but it, you know it. it 
it's obviously a life-changing thing, but you can, you know, change it around to your benefit or use it as a launch pad to push you into other things you maybe weren't ready for before. And I, you know, it's definitely changed my life in some terrible ways, but I think the connections that I've made through it and by reaching out and also getting to know other queers that maybe before I didn't feel that I had my place in, all that kind mm. of stuff. And now I've realized that they were there all along and ready to take me in. I love this. Thank you so much to all of you. Thank you so much, Stuart, for being here. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for um, um, calling in. And Rebecca, you've got your surgery on Monday? Hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be thinking about you. And thank thank you you to Ben. And thank you for all of you for listening. If you want to hear more shows like this, um, you know, on this topic, if there's a specific aspect of it that you'd like to hear, hear more about you can contact us at highshinecancersupport.org um, if you have other topics that you would like us to delve into feel free to uh, drop us an email you can also find us on facebook you can find Stuart at so on socials it's at ltt cancer and that's for instagram twitter slowly developing on facebook lovely all right so till next time bye